the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Holy One, Holy Three, breathe your spirit over us. Amen. What is it with birth pangs? Hannah is desperate for them. Jesus tells the disciples to expense, expect them. Although I find this pretty funny because think about it. There's like one dude in a circle of dudes talking about birth pangs. And as one who recent, like in real recent memory, remembers what that's like. I was like, Jesus, I know you know a lot, but I don't know if you can talk about this. I appreciated it. Thank you. Birth pangs, beginning of the end, beginning of the new. It certainly seems like if ever there was a time to think we're in birth pang territory, this time in our collective psyche would be it. A friend forwarded a newsletter from a pediatrician suggesting that barring some unforeseen craziness, which is not out of the realm of possibility, we are actually finally in the late stages of this pandemic, with five to 11-year-olds being vaccinated, whoop, whoop, and two strong antiviral medications in pill form, well, we're nearing the finish line of this race that none of us signed up for. The doctor, she wrote this note as a chin up, the end is in sight, using the metaphor of marathon runners who knowing that there's an end makes all the difference. This is good news. For a long time now, I've been hoping, waiting, praying to hear someone say, chin up, the end is in sight. In today's gospel, Jesus in his own way is saying the same thing. From the beginning, we Christians have been hearing this message on loop. Chin up, 
the end is in sight. There's no illusion when it comes to the life of faith. We know that there will be an end to this earthly experience. We know that there's a finish line. We just don't know when. Which is so infuriating and such a gift at the same time. Humans, we always want to know, when will this be over? It's a quirk of humanity. We see it on display with the disciples as they whisk Jesus off to the side to privately ask him one final question about the destruction he described. Possibly the single most important question they had, which is, tell us, when will this be? But Jesus doesn't answer that question, though, does he? No. Jesus returns to the, the conversation to the domain of the lived experience. He avoids the question about the mechanics of the divine and shifts the conversation to one of leadership. In this moment, Jesus' non-answer functions as a profound answer. Jesus reminds disciples and therefore is reminding us that our focus should be on the here and now. By bringing the conversation to one about leadership, Jesus is drawing the attention back to the realm of humanity. And in this realm, relationships, human interaction, social cohesion, these are the things to be focused on. And this is where we need to put our attention back to, to getting to know one another, on learning who people are to make good choices about togetherness, and yes, about leaders. This is our invitation to pay attention to the thing that matters most, to relationships, to getting to know one another. I've been reading Richard Rohr's 2016 book, The Divine Dance, and I'm finding it thrilling, exciting and terrifying at the same time. And just as any good thriller should have, there's a great mystery being revealed. Roar, being Roar, is happy to leave God as the mystery. In fact, I, side fun fact, he writes in this book that he agrees with those who think we should just stop calling God God for 50 years. And instead of calling God God, we should call God holy mystery. And then after 50 years, all of us come back together and say, what did we learn about God by calling God the holy mystery? What myths can we put to bed? I just find that fascinating. We're not, we're not retiring God and, and St. Columbus, but it's just interesting. And the great mystery that Rohr wants us to spend some time thinking about and unpacking is the Trinity. He's making the wild claim that if you want to know the, the Trinity, you don't seek first to understand it. You seek first to be in relationships. For more than anything else, the Trinity is relationship. That in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is where the dynamism is. That's the magic of Trinity. He uses as metaphor that also functions as an example the most basic structure of the universe, the atom. An atom is essentially comprised of three parts, the proton, neutron, and electron. And the dynamism of the atom is not in any one part of the atom, 
but in their relationship and what they can do together and how they interact with one another. Similarly, humans best experience the Trinity, understand the Trinity, or best understand the teachings of Jesus and are best able to live out our gifts in the world in living in this relationship, in living in our relationships. This sounds not very new or revolutionary, which is true, frankly, of all good ideas. But the implications of this in my life do feel new and revolutionary. When I think of my biggest regrets, when I think of my biggest hurts, I think of my relationships. When I look out at the pandemic and the places that people have been hurt most and what they've missed most, it's relationships. The world feels hurt and broken. Could it be because we haven't paid enough attention to relationships? Worse, could it be because we have been taught that relationships are the sprinkles on the ice cream cone of life, when in fact, relationships are the actual ice cream. You can't have an ice cream cone with no ice cream. No meaningful relationships, no meaningful life. Again, this sounds simplistic, but it flies in the face of how our society is actually structured. Rohr lays this misunderstanding at the feet of none other than Aristotle. Brilliant thinker, but he led Western culture down a path that subordinated relationships as inferior to substances, things that are independent of all else, that stand alone. So for example, a tree is a substance, whereas father is a relationship. And he ranked these categories with substances being the highest and because of their independent nature, they were given the place of supremacy. Yet, when this Jesus is revealed to us Christians by calling himself the son of the father and yet one with the father, he is giving clear primacy to relationship. And this is Rohr's wild claim, that the saving work of God has everything to do with relationships, the here and now. Jesus, the incarnate one, invited us into relationship with the holy mystery. You have been invited, are being invited this day, every day, into relationship with God, with humanity with your own soul even. The dominant systems of our world still subordinate relationships to things, to the substances of life. I'll be able to focus on my relationships when I get my things in order. At least that's how I spent my entire 20s. For those of us wondering what it means to have an authentic Christian witness these days, maybe the answer has something to do with reclaiming the essential nature of humans as relational creatures and being unapologetic about it. Maybe, Christians, we can be a people for whom relationships are taken seriously. 
far from being simplistic, this might be the greatest challenge there is. Rohr illustrates this powerfully, and I, I sort of want us to end here. He writes, have you ever met a holy person? There are always people who can stay in relationship at all costs. People who are toxic, psychopathic, or sociopathic are always those who cannot maintain relationships, who cannot sustain relationships. They run from them. Usually either they are loners or they make all relationships with them very difficult. I once met a psychiatrist who made a statement to me that I thought at first was an overstatement. He's older than I am and I'm in my 70s and he said, Richard, at the end of your life, you'll realize that every mentally ill person you've ever worked with is basically lonely. Oh, come on, that's a little glib, isn't it, I replied. Oh, I admit there are probably physical reasons for some mental illness, but loneliness is what activates it. I've run this theory by several psychiatrist friends after they get over their initial stunned objection. Oh, come on, that's too simple. They agree. Every case of non-physiologically based mental illness stems from a person who has been separated, cut off, living alone, forgetting how to relate. This person does not know intimacy and is starved for communion. Communion. That's what we do. We are people of communion. We have the antidote. Now let's go out and share it. Amen. Okay.